Well, last night, I was unable to attend the second lecture. And it was nothing against Keith, I promise you. In fact, I wanted to be there because I wanted to see how Keith's lecture might affect my lecture. But I wasn't able to be here in this room. I was over in the children's room because my son, Jonathan, was experiencing a terrible earache. How many of you have had an earache before? How many of you have children that have earaches on occasion? Never. You know, it's, it's a terrible thing to see your children in pain, isn't it? And so my wife took my son. They went over to Walgreens. We, we talked to Dr. Rachel Nelson. Fortunately, we had a doctor in the house that could give us a quick prescription and went and got what we call at our house the pink stuff. The pink stuff. Amoxicillin built upon a prescription, built upon actually an accident. And maybe of you have heard the story. Let's see if I can get this moving. Turning on would be part of the prescription, I imagine. You recognize this man, Dr. Eric? Alexander Fleming, who is credited as the founder, the discoverer of penicillin. It was by accident that he found it, though. He had gone on a summer vacation, and he came back. He said, I came back into my lab when I woke up just after dawn on September 28, 1928, 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionize all medicine by discovering the first antibiotic. But I guess that's exactly what I did. He had discovered what we now call penicillin growing there in his laboratory. And he, as he worked with it and as he tried to to make things happen, he realized that he didn't have the chemistry background to mass produce what he knew would be what people needed. There were many diseases that were very common then that aren't common now because of what he discovered. But the challenge he had is he didn't have the chemistry background, nor did he have the political connections to get things moving in a forward way. What he saw in his microscope in that Petri dish was limited to a small place and time. He says, penicillin sat on a shelf for 10 years while I was called a quack. People, he went out and he, he tried his best with what he knew to let people know that something wonderful was brewing. But many laughed at him. They said, well, show us the evidence. Show us in humans. And it took a couple other individuals, Howard Florey and Ernest Chain. They, working in cohort, were able to not only mass produce, but also get the funding that they needed to push it through to help hundreds and thousands of people. World, World War II um, was coming, and in World War II, thousands of soldiers' lives, thousands of soldiers' lives 
were saved because of penicillin being used there on the battlefield. That was actually one of the first places that it was mass-produced to help the boys at war. It's estimated that 20 million lives have been saved due to penicillin. That's about the same as the amount of people that live in the country of Brazil at this time. 200 million lives. I said 20. 200 million lives have been saved. You know, Revelation talks about a situation where a prescription was needed. And I encourage you, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 2. Revelation 5, 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? There was a scroll, and no one could open it. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But hope came. Just like the hope that came in that Petri dish, hope came when one of the elders spoke saying, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Pictured here is a lamb with seven eyes, and seven horns, and with a deadly wound. And around him are 24 elders. And as they realize that he alone can open the scrolls, they bow themselves in submission, crying, You are worthy, verse 9, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That lamb sacrificed is the same lamb that was talked about in Matthew 3, verse 5. The story is told of John the Baptist. He went out and he was baptizing. He said, then went out to went out to him, Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region around about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. People were flocking, coming to John the Baptist. He was speaking a message, a message of impending doom, but also a message of freedom. The kingdom of God was at hand. Come and repent. Let's get serious. And there in his carpenter shop, I can imagine Jesus shutting things down. He puts away his tools for the last time. 
He sweeps the floor for the last time, and he too goes to the Jordan. And as John sees him coming over that knoll, he cries out, echoing the same words that were talked about there in Revelation. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold him, look at him, consider him. That is our invitation tonight. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Revelation 13.8 calls him the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's one of 33 different names for Jesus in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the star of the book of Revelation. We, we might be brought into meetings like this because we want to learn about beasts and we want to learn about dragons and we want to learn about prophecies. But really, when you get to the root of the book of Revelation, the revelation is a revelation of Jesus. That's exactly who it is. Let's go to the earliest prophecy in the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. This is a prophecy seminar, but it's not limited to the books of Daniel and Revelation. That's because prophecy, prophecy has been there since the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Pictured here is Eve and Adam in the garden. And they have made a big mistake. They are discouraged. They are, they are realizing now for the first time the effects of their terrible mistake. But there is hope in prophecy. These are the words of Jesus. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's consider this verse. First of all, enmity. Enmity, hatred, discord. Enmity is not natural between sinners and Satan. It's only something that God can put there. Are you struggling with things that just seem way too easy that you know you shouldn't do? Time and time again, they just become almost reflex, reflexive in nature. God can give enmity, enmity between his way in your heart and the devil's way. Between you, speaking of Satan, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, stomping. And you shall bruise his heel. Do you get killed when your heel gets bruised? If I were to stomp and stomp and stomp and kick and kick and kick your heel, Doug, would I kill you? But if you were to kick and kick and kick on my head, eventually I would die. 
There's victory found in this verse, isn't there? Victory for those who are aligned with God. Revelation 12, let's turn there, continues in a similar narrative. And we talked about this the other night. Chris presented about why bad things happen to good people. What is this great controversy that we're talking about? Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Satan, formerly Lucifer, we heard his story. We know, we know that he had eyes on being the top dog. He wanted to be number one. Not because it was what he was called to do, but because it's what he thought he should do. But he lost that battle. A battle of words, a battle of hearts. And with him came a third of the angels. Revelation 12.10, talking about that scene, says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Do you get accused sometimes? Do you get reminded of what you've done? I imagine there were times where the devil came again to Eve and to Adam and reminded them, remember what you did? You see these thorns? You see this dying flower? That's your fault. You did it. You are to blame. Does he ever come to you with words like that? I know he does to me. He has been cast down. He has lost. He will ultimately be destroyed. And there, then there's another group, a group of individuals, tempted, tried, but overcomers. And how do they overcome? This is key. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the very death. An overcomer. Do you want to be an overcomer? I do. Look at the benefits. Revelation 2 talks all, all about the benefits of overcoming. Revelation 2.7 says, We will eat from the tree of life. 2.11, We won't be hurt by the second death. 2.17, We'll have hidden manna to eat. 2.26, Power over nations. Revelation 3.5, Jesus will confess our name before the angels and his Father. In Revelation 3.12, we will be made a pillar in God's temple with a new name written by God himself. Look at those benefits. Is it worth it? Do you want to be an overcomer? 
And then ultimately, undeserved though we may be, we will have the opportunity to sit on God's throne. Now that's radical. No created being has ever sat on God's throne. But the promise to the overcomer is that we will one day sit on his throne. I want to be an overcomer. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Worthy is that Lamb that was slain. Worthy. Behold Him. Behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting, everlasting life. And life with many benefits. Now, let's say this together with our name in it. Put your name in the blank. For God so loved the world that he, for God so loved what? Mike. For God so loved Let's do it together. For God so loved Eddie. That's why he did it. He did it for individuals. One by one. If it worked just for one, he would have died. He loved us. And so whosoever, any of us who believe, should not have to perish eternally, but have everlasting life. God so loved me. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's his motivation? Love. It was love that had Jesus come to this world. It was love that caused Jesus to step down from the throne in heaven. It was love that led Jesus to a cruel death, a death of mockery, a death of abandonment. It was love that led him there. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him as a baby in his mother's arms. Behold him fleeing with his parents as the devil tries to kill him fleeing to Egypt for freedom. Behold him as a refugee. Behold him as a child mocked by his friends. Behold him in his ministry. Behold him praying in Gethsemane. Behold the Lamb. Is he worthy? Isaiah 53 describes more of the ministry of Jesus. A prophecy, a prophecy. Isaiah 53, and we'll start in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Is he worthy? Doing all that for us, being wounded, carrying our sorrows, being bruised, being chastised, being killed. Is he worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of us giving our lives? Is he worthy? Yes, he is. It was by his grace, the grace of free gift given, that we have any merit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. And that, not of yourselves. You didn't do anything to deserve the grace that Jesus gave. Every step of the way, his life was a gift of grace to us undeserved though we may be. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of anything we've done or will do, lest anyone should boast. Are we worthy? No. But he is. For by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God. Not of works. It is a gift. Free gift of grace. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Through his blood we can have his grace. His gift on Calvary was the fullest and richest gift he could give. The fullness of his grace was exhibited on Calvary's hill. 1 John 1, 7 talks about how we should respond to this grace. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And once again, it's that blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sin. Are you worthy? No. Do you need a bath? Yes. Is he worthy? Does he promise to give you that bath? Yes. If we say that we have no sin, we lie. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You know, often we get together with fellow religious people and we put on masks 
People ask us how we're doing, and we say we're doing well or fine or good. People ask us how our week went, and we, we don't cover the dirty details, do we? It's easy to put on a face. But sometimes we do that to our detriment, don't we? When we, in those quiet hours, fail to realize our need, we deceive ourselves. But there's a good alternative. And 1 John 1, 9 talks about it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I want to look at this verse. Does it say, does it have any qualifiers? You may say to me, Eddie, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how I turned my back on the Lord. You don't know how I turned my back on the ways that I was taught as a child. Or turned my back on people who could have helped me. You just don't know. But he does. And in his word is the promise that he is faithful and just. He knows. We don't have to know. He knows. And he will cleanse. Just, just as much as we can trust that the sun will come up tomorrow morning, we can trust because he is faithful. And he will do a good work if we allow him to. Is he worthy? He is. Turn with me to the book of Acts. How do we respond? How do we respond? The story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 30. Actually, we'll start in 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake that chariot. So Philip ran up, this is to a eunuch of Ethiopia, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you are reading? Have there been times in reading the Bible that you don't understand things? And you've had the opportunity to come together with fellow believers, and somebody has been given an insight that has really helped you. This is what is happening here. New truth, new things are coming to this man's mind, things that he doesn't understand. He's actually reading from Isaiah 53, what we just read minutes ago. And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Then Philip began, it says in verse 35, Acts 8:35. Then Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He preached Jesus to him, it says in the Bible I'm reading from. It was Jesus who was that lamb. 
And what was the reaction of the eunuch? Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said to him, If you believe with your whole heart, you may be baptized. And he answered, says there in 37, and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. In the water, the eunuch went, symbolizing his acceptance of that lamb that was slain. By getting in those waters and allowing Philip to lay him down, he was surrendering to the one who is worthy. He was saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. To the eunuch, was he worthy? Yes, he was. You say, Eddie, I've already been baptized. I was baptized as a baby. My parents believed he was worthy, so they baptized me. Is that the example that we find here with Philip and the eunuch? Is this a child? A child who, who doesn't know any better, right from wrong, who's being baptized? No. This is a man who, in learning about Jesus and learning about his teachings, says, I want what he has. I make the decision in my full-grown mind, in my understanding mind, and I want to be baptized. The Greek word baptizo actually means to dip or to immerse, to plunge under the water. There are others who baptize in a variety of ways. And if you look back into history, you'll see that the reason that there are so many methods of baptism was simply for expediency's sake. There wasn't, everywhere they went, places where they could baptize. So they said, well, we'll just put some water in a, in a water bottle, and we'll take and we'll just dribble it over their heads. That'll be enough. That'll be a dip. But truly, <laughs> baptizo means to go down under all the way. Now, what does baptism symbolize? Romans chapter 6 talks about that. Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, says, Or do you not know that as many of us as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Baptized into what? Now, what does that mean? What it means is, in going down into the water, we are accepting the substitute that Jesus gave us in his death. We are saying, cover me, O Lamb of God, with your blood. And as I go down, I am dying to my old ways. I am dying to my old lifestyle. I am dying to my old choices. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, and I think I, I missed a verse there, 
So we'll go to let's go to Romans six and read it all ourselves here. Romans six. And we'll pick up in verse 4. Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So what? what's the next part? Christ was raised from the dead. So we go down into the water, and we're covered by the water, representing a cleansing a cleansing by Christ's blood of our unrighteousness. And as we come up, it's a celebration of new life. It's a celebration of Christ's resurrection. We are resurrected into something new. Now, in the church, people have come up with other ways to celebrate the resurrection. We have holidays, and we have other things that people have come up with. But there's really only one biblical way to celebrate Christ's resurrection. That's in baptism. It's a celebration of a life made new by the blood of the Lamb. Is he worthy? He's worthy. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Now this is a bit perplexing. What does it mean to have a new life? What are the components of a Christian new life experience. It's a heart transplant, really. A new heart is promised to the believer. Jesus is our standard. And though he had no sin, he went to get baptized as well, didn't he? Why? As a symbol, to show us as our director, to guide us as our leader to pioneer what we ought to do as well. A new heart comes to us as a gift once again by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you need that? Are there still areas in your life that are rocky, that are hard, that are unkind, that need the softening touch. Hebrews 10.16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. God wants to put our law his law, rather, in our hearts. He wants to make it, as we commune with him, a reflex action to do things his way. Putting his law in our hearts and writing his law in our minds. The experience that's written of the psalmist is the experience that God will give us as a gift through his Holy Spirit. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Is it a struggle sometimes to do things God's way? Pray for a deepening of the Holy Spirit in your life. Pray for that power. The power 
that resurrected Jesus is available to us to resurrect our lives. It's throughout Scripture. There's a power without that will come within. So what are the steps for biblical baptism? Number one, we need to accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Number two, we need to understand the teachings of Jesus. Just like the eunuch in the story of Philip. He needed to be taught. He needed to understand what he was coming into. He needed to have the fullness of understanding of the teachings of Jesus. And then, in realizing who Jesus is and what he teaches, we will confess our sins and repent. Jesus is speaking to us tonight. He's saying, I have something better than you've ever tasted before. I have something more meaningful than you've ever tried before. I have something more powerful than you've ever experienced before. Come with me, my child. Come and experience my blood in your life. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. If there's anybody here tonight, perhaps hasn't ever taken that step, that step of baptism which says, you are worthy enough. You are worthy more than enough. You are worthy. These are the words addressed to you. And why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Jesus is inviting you to behold the Lamb. Behold Him in His fullness and to ask yourself the question, is He worthy? You'll be tempted to think about yourself. You'll be tempted to think about the things that you've done. You'll be tempted to think about your unworthiness. But move your eyes up. Look higher. Look brighter. Look at the Lamb. Is He worthy? He is. It's not your unworthiness. It's His worthiness that leads you to Him.